Hello, my name's Phil Kane. I'm a journalist who specialises in alcohol. Generally speaking, my stories are centred around a scientific approach and it has many, many advantages, but it also misses out on individual stories and individual stories are what we connect with. So to redress the balance, I've invited on a special guest, Alison Canavan, who's spoken about her experiences with alcohol in the past, but is going to share some of her experiences with us today. Hello, Alison. Thank you so much, Phil. It's great to be with you today. You're currently known worldwide and um, particularly in Ireland for being a very uh, forceful advocate of mental health and uh, awareness around alcohol. But I think it's fair to say that it, this hasn't always been the case. So, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey. An aspect of me was always a spiritual soul seeker, really, you know, um, and then I ended up in the fashion industry from a very, very young age, not really feeling fully confident, not really knowing who I was, what my purpose was in the world, suffering from depression and anxiety from a very, very early age, and nobody really talking to me about it or telling me that maybe I could do something about it myself. So from the age of 15, I was medicated, you know? Mm -hmm. What do we do with people? We medicate them, you know? Mm -hmm. You have a system, give you a pill, and hope that it goes away. But what usually happens is the pills cause side effects, they cause more health issues. And when you're putting all of that stuff into you from a young age, of course I found drink. <laughs> and, you know, that was freedom for a while. And yeah. it was a, one of the only times I could feel kind of free and relaxed. But of course we know that that doesn't last very long either because they're temporary solutions to mm. deeper problems. You've spoken about how you've been interested in sort of spirituality and Buddhism and, and you've had a Buddhist practice of, of one kind or another for maybe 20 years or, or, or more, maybe. And uh, could you just explain how these uh, things have sort of intertwined with, you know, the overlap with your drinking career and some of the mental health issues you've uh, you, you've described? From when I was a child, yeah, uh -huh. I was always interested in. Do you know, it was very interesting for me because the Catholic Church in Ireland, I always kind of just had this strange feeling when I was in school. I went to a convent school and I remember I used to come home and say to my mom, these people work for God, right? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, but they're not very nice, mom. Like, is God not good? And he's not like, do we not say God is love and he loves you? And so I always was kind of really confused from a very young girl. Like every time you ask questions, of course, it was like, shh, don't be asking questions. Don't ask questions like that. So I was always very confused and very interested. And I always had a very curious mind. And I was like, what is this God? Who is this God? And who are these people that work for him? And why are they not nice? And, you know, we're kind of indoctrinated into this. Um, world of fear so if you don't behave a certain way or you don't do something well then you're going to hell and I remember there was a saying in Ireland like if you answer your mother back you know um, your, your hand will be sticking up out of the grave when you pass away like all of these things that you're told as a kid it seems uh, Irish mothers take an even dimmer view of uh, answering back than Mancunian ones uh, could you uh, say how uh, you know these these experiences and and uh, you know wove into your thinking on uh, addiction. So when I started to listen to Gabor Mate's work, I was like, self-soothing a part of yourself in pain. And then I started to dig deeper into that. And his book, Into the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, was like every page was just like whoa, because I could just understand myself a little bit more. And having spent ten to fifteen years in AA, in and out, in and out, I had never heard addiction from this perspective. Um, and so it was like, okay, that's interesting. And then when I did a course with him, 
Another story that really resonated was when he said, you know, five kids can be brought up in the same family. So, and they can experience similar trauma. You know, they're brought up in the same family, but trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And so what happens if both, both of us are in a car accident fail, how you process it and how I process it will be completely different. The effect it has on us will be completely different. The same with life, the same with growing up in the same family. So he tells a very powerful story of, you know, the eldest kid going off and being a CEO of a, you know, billion dollar company and working 16 hours a day, never spending a day with his family, never ever home for dinner, you know, never in the family home. Yet he does have a family. He's three kids. But he's celebrated and the family tell everybody about him everywhere they go. God, isn't he amazing? And the parents talk about how proud they are. And then the next child becomes an alcoholic. Both are doing exactly the same thing. Self-soothing part of themselves in pain. But one is celebrated by society and the other is not. But they're both escaping themselves. Yeah, in this scenario, you were, in, in a way, both of these uh, people, you had, uh, you know, a glittering career, no doubt, uh, a demanding career, but and also drinking uh, uh, too much, uh, which all changed at the beginning of the 2010s. You, you, you became pregnant and presumably you stopped drinking then. So I didn't drink through my pregnancy. Um, I didn't drink after because I was breastfeeding. So I thought like that journey was done. <laughs> I thought we were done. Mm-hmm. which was really interesting. And uh, so I was like, oh, so I'm well able not to drink. This is really interesting. That's great. And so, um, yeah, so I started to just kind of be very, very intrigued and interested by what causes us to feel, feel down, the kind of foods we eat, the kind of behavior patterns we emit, all of that. And then like about a year after I had my child, or maybe a little bit more, I decided, and I write this in my book, Minding Mom, that I would go out with my friends, you know, and have one or two drinks. Anyway, arrived home at four in the morning, head over the toilet bowl, and my mother came in and said, nice to see you've changed. And I was like, wow. And of course, I just felt this horrific shame run through my body, the guilt, all of those horrible emotions you get, you know, when you're just so disappointed in yourself and that self-loathing and just hating myself. And thinking, like, what is wrong with me? You know, I haven't drank in so long. Like, why can't I control this? And, of course, the first thing we do is we become defensive, you know, and go, oh, for God's sake, you know, it was a celebration. Everybody was out. And that's what we do as addicts, you know. So I never went back to the drinking as it was before. But I thought, you know, I kept thinking in my head as we do, you know, I can control this. I'll only drink once every two weeks when mom has my child or once every three weeks when she goes out. And you know, I could never just go out and have a couple of drinks. That's what transpired. And I went out one night and I drank too much and didn't remember getting home. And it was quite a precarious situation. And I just sat and I prayed the next day. And it's interesting in all of AA when, you know, you surrender, um, that never worked for me. But this day I just prayed and I said, every single day for the rest of my life, I promise I'll show up and serve in whatever way that means. I don't know what that looks like right now. If you help me, and I have never drank since. So essentially, you know, you, you've been through, well, nine months of pregnancy plus uh, months of, of breastfeeding afterwards. And therefore, you know, as a matter of physical fact, you'd stop drinking for, let's say, a year or more. Uh, yet the old habit kind of came back again. 
But something still hadn't clicked, even though I hadn't drank during my pregnancy, you know, that that kind of whole, even when I'd had periods of three, four months of not drinking during AA, there was always that kind of, oh, such and such is getting married in six months, great. So I'll be able to have a night out then. So, you know, you're just pushing off and you're looking forward to the next time that you can go out mm -hmm. and have that kind of big night out. So I still had never kind of, I mean, I had never made peace. The whole idea of you will never drink again. I mean, that terrified me, terrified me. So like, I just couldn't imagine life without alcohol. Plus I was in, I'm indoctrinated into a country where alcohol is everything. I mean, you're a freak if you don't drink in Ireland, literally, you know? And I, I, I discovered that really quickly when I gave up drinking, the phone never rang. <laughs> but it's really interesting um, because my mom, I was out with my mom's one, one weekend and a phone rang and my mom goes, oh, that's your phone. And I was like, I don't think so, mom. It's Saturday night. <laughs> and she's like, and of course, there's any one more, do you know? She's like, oh my gosh, you mean to say no one rings you anymore? I was like, no, I was really upset about it for the first year and a half, like really upset. I cried all the time. like. Why is no one calling me? I said, it's okay. I'm kind of, I've, I've dealt with it now or whatever. But yeah, the phone stops ringing. You don't get invited anywhere. Um, you know, if you do go somewhere, the entire conversation is revolved around. So do you really want to drink now? Or do we look really stupid now? Or do you think I'm drinking a lot? Or do I, have I had too much? Am I getting drunk? Or so at this time of the night, are you getting too tired? And I was like, oh, this is a nightmare anyway, right? Because the whole conversation is revolved around you not drinking. And even if it's not revolved around you not drinking, you know, you can just feel that people are watching you. Do you know what I mean? And then inevitably the conversation starts with, do you feel really awkward now at this point when everybody else is having loads of fun? And I'm like, oh my God. I, I do now. <laughs> but of course, uh, you know, you, you get pressure to drink everywhere. In Ireland, like we associate alcohol with everything. We celebrate births, we celebrate deaths. Everybody goes to the pub every weekend. You know, you go to someone's house in the evening, the first thing they offer you is a drink. I'm in a completely different headspace now. I don't pass judgment on anyone. I mean, this is the country we were brought up in. Not everyone ends up having a problem with it like me, but it is a big problem. You know, it's like alcohol consumption. I'm still in contact with all the different charities and organizations that um, are, you know, Alcohol Action Ireland and everything that are trying to help bring people's awareness to the destructive effects and nature of alcohol, especially now in a pandemic when we're trying to keep our immune system high and we're also sitting at home. So if you're sitting at home anyway, I don't care if you're the healthiest person in the world, your immune system is going to be affected and compromised in some way. And there you're talking about the general population. Do you think, uh, you know, people with alcohol problems, do you think they're having a, a particularly difficult time? I have a huge amount of clients who've relapsed after 20, 15, 20 years, and they've relapsed at this time. They come through six, seven weeks of lockdown. And my heart is absolutely broken, but it's kind of, I can understand it as well. You know, their businesses have been taken and they've no income. They've got kids, they're at home, their marriages have broken up. So, um, you know, people are in extraordinary situations and what happens when we're hurting? So if we go back to what Gabor Mate said, you know, alcohol is self-soothing, a part of yourself in pain. And I suppose it's not just the individual it, it, it's affecting. Not everyone is a happy drunk, <laughs> you know? Not everyone drinks and has a great time at home. So, you know, we know that abuse is happening and, you know, marital abuse and abuse with children. And we know that all of these things are happening right now. So I don't know the outcome of what's gonna happen right now. And I think those of us who are in a position to be able to help are doing the best we can and teaching 10 hours a week pro bono at the moment, 
to people who reach out and need it. Um, and I just think that this is really highlighting the crisis of alcohol that we do have in Ireland, that it is an escape, that it is it is a form of numbing a part of us in pain. So, you know, it's obviously for a lot of people, it's not the right time to dig deep into that pain when they're sitting at home in, in quarantine, you know, because you need support to do that, I believe, you know, it depends. But certainly it's a time to look at how we cope with things as a society. So there's a, a, a quite a, a bleak picture in, in some circumstances, but I've certainly heard from people who've, uh, who are finding it relatively easy to uh, curb their drinking and actually quite welcoming this uh, social isolation because it removes this social driver for their drinking. I come back to the same thing I say all the time, is that every single individual is different, you know, every single person. So, like, if this was... The time when I gave up alcohol in Ireland, I'd be in heaven. Like if this was years ago and I gave up alcohol and we were we were quarantined, oh my gosh, it would probably be like blissful, you know, because I'd be able to do the work I was doing and, you know, move further into my recovery without that external pressure and stress. So I completely agree. And for people of kind of like minds who may be using this opportunity to take a look at their alcohol problems and maybe dealing with some of the difficult feelings and thoughts that go with that process, have you got any suggestions for them? But what I always say to people is it's never too late to start. It's never too late to reach out for help. There is so much happening. Like today is World Medita uh, Meditation Day. Nearly every single, you know, meditation center around the world is offering free meditation. Mindful Leader is offering meditations 24 hours a day, free, mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. So you can log on every hour on the hour and get support. So what I keep saying to people is, you know, no time like the present to actually maybe try something new try something different, go in and do this work, you know, begin the art of kind of introspection, you know, and, and learn, learn about yourself. And, you know, one of the most powerful things we can do in this journey is know thyself, know thyself. I spent my entire life trying to avoid that, you know, and I was really good at it, you know. I was in the perfect industry, Phil. I was a model. <laughs> I wouldn't want to play up such uh, crude stereotypes, but... I, I guess few of us have, uh, you know, the option to escape in that way, even at the best of times, and 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 uh, well, particularly not now. But we do have the capacity just to to go to the fridge and crack open a beer or open a bottle of wine or whatever. And and the question is, how do we, you know, resist that if we we've decided that it's it's not the best option? Why why don't we just take that escape? So you you have to first of all bring it home first, and you have to ask yourself some very hard questions. So we're react when we open that bottle, we're reacting to the same emotional triggers that have come up over and over again. So it's a reactive kind of behavior that we're doing. It's like the first border call, this, this helps to make me feel better straight away, so I'm just gonna do it. One of the most difficult things for me anyway, and I know for an awful lot of the addicts I've worked with, is the whole idea of taking full responsibility for yourself, like full responsibility. Like I was willing to take a lot of responsibility, but the whole full responsibility thing, I'm like, well, I'm not sure I'm quite there. You know, we still want to kind of go, yeah, but I just want you to hear this one story where this is actually the reason I did this, you know, and you want to get someone to agree with you. Unfortunately, moving in from me into full recovery was getting to the place of taking responsibility that every single choice you have made to date, every single choice is the reason that you're here today. And your results never lie. One of my mentors said that to me, and I felt this visceral kind of defensive response when she said it. Because when she said it at the time, Phil, I didn't like my results. <laughs> I was like, 
Hold on a second. I'm not happy with my results. But... So uh, something clearly changed. And uh, what was it? I wanted it really badly, Phil, for many, many, many years. Mm. You know, I knew alcohol wasn't serving me. I didn't feel good. You know, when I was out, I never wanted the party to end because I couldn't bear going back to the, my life the next day. You know, I just couldn't bear being in life. And everything has switched for me. It's like, I live in a perpetual state of gratitude. Like, really, I do. You know, in the beginning, it was kind of, in the beginning, it was hilarious because I'm a really visual person. So I need a lot of reminders. So there was post-it notes everywhere. Like on the computer now, there would be like, just breathe or think of something you're grateful for. If you open the kitchen cupboard, if you took down the visor in the car, so there was post-its everywhere. In the morning when I woke up, there would be a post-it beside my bed saying, think of three things you're grateful for and breathe. Because otherwise, I would just get up and get dressed because we are a creature of habit. We do what we've always done. So if we want to change those habits, we actually have to put determined effort into changing those habits. Now, it's just a way of living for me. I wake up, I do my stretching, I meditate, I breathe, I think of things I'm grateful for. They might sound like a lot of things for someone. It's so natural for me to do all of that before I wake up. I couldn't even imagine starting my day without that. Multiple times throughout the day, I do breathing and I'm constantly kind of bringing myself home to myself if I feel kind of stressed or pulled out or something and going like, what do I really feel grateful for right now? And one of the things we don't do as human beings, and I find this very powerful, a little bit later on when I'm working with people who have addictions, is tuning into the part of us, the proud of moments. So it's like turning up the volume and gratitude. So it's kind of honoring the human part of us that takes action, you know, each and every day. And that's something that we don't do. We don't celebrate our successes enough. So as an addict, you're very often fully focused on how you screwed up all the time. And then you usually have a lot of people around you who are very happy to remind you of all the times that you've done something um, and not shown up or screwed up and you know, you find yourself at family dinners and the conversation comes up and, you know, oh, Alison, do you remember when you did this? So it's really interesting, though, because I lived like a victim for an awful long time. You know, like when those things used to happen to me, I used to be like, feel really sorry for myself. And why did they have to bring that up again? Like, I feel like I've done really well. But the more work you do in yourself and the more you get to know yourself and the more you begin to feel that sense of inner peace and alignment, the less you care about what anyone in the outside world says and does. And what's really interesting about it is they don't do it anymore because you're mm. on a different frequency and they're not getting the same reaction. And for people just starting out on this path, you know, maybe trying to cut down or uh, eliminate alcohol from their lives, how do you recommend they find alternative activities to, to find peace of mind? Find something you love. You know, like if it's an exercise, like a lot of people I speak to hate going to the gym. You know, I, I wrote a book for new moms and I told them some moms right to me going, Alison, I only have a, a, an hour a week, you know, and I feel guilty because I know I have to go to the gym, but I don't want to go to the gym. And I'm like, why are you doing something in the only hour you have in the week that you hate doing? So I'm like, find something that you love doing. Find something that you're really looking forward to. Find this a million different ways to exercise. Like for myself, I hate going to the gym, like always have done. And we adore hiking. So for me, that's like just one of the greatest assets to my life. And in Ireland, Ireland is the most stunning country for hiking as well. Like it's so beautiful, same as England or anywhere. Um, yeah, and it's it's about finding what works for you. And I was always trying to kind of do 
what I think I should be doing. You yeah. know, what would, what would help me to fit in, what would gain, you know, approval from the outside world. And I was constantly, constantly looking for validation. Constantly. Lily, you're uh, a role model for many young women and, and maybe many who wish to be models. How would you describe, you know, the, the uh, uh, life uh, of a model and the rewards of, of, of being a model? We had this conversation yesterday, myself and my best friend here who lives in L.A., who comes from, you know, this background as well, and she's done very well. Um, and we were trying to think, we were trying to list people in our industry that we know that are happy. And uh, we didn't. Anyway, at the end of it, we were like, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's not a great uh, sign, is it? Um, as somebody who's seen, you know, the pursuit of validation on the grand scale, you know, rubbing shoulders with uh, the rich and famous, uh, you know, what, what, have you, what have you made of it? This, it's really interesting. I entered the industry at 15 and famous people never phased me because I met so many of them when I was young. And, you know, that old saying of never meet your hero. That came to life for me very quickly when I was young. But I have, you know, when you're in an industry where everything is placed on what you look like, you know, your fame, you know, it doesn't bring happiness. And I learned that really at a really, really young age, really young age. And what I've learned about life in general is it's how you feel inside. And it's the simple things. It's the simple things each and every day. And we see now with this epidemic of craziness on social media, you know, with young people of, how many likes do you have? How many this? And it's just another form of distraction because really at the end of the day, every, every single human being is the same at the level of feel, wanting to be seen and validated. Every single human being on earth. So no matter what you end up doing for a living, you know, really what most people want is to feel validated and seen by like their parents. Like most people I work with are like, my dad has never said to me, he loves me. My mom has never said she's proud. You know, I just wish my family could accept me for who I am. So it's really kind of distilling it back down to your sense of worth as an individual. And maybe just as a final bit of closure, what kind of things can we expect to achieve doing the sort of work that you uh, described earlier in this conversation? I've witnessed extraordinary things when people take the time to mm. work with themselves. And... You know, I always say, imagine if each one of us took time and took full responsibility for how we're thinking, how we're feeling and how we're acting. What kind of world would that be? <laughs> it would be a world in which I would have very little to write about. But uh, apart from that, I think it would be a very good uh, way forward. I thank you very much for your time, Alison. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And I'm sure everybody who's watched this has uh, gained a lot from it. And uh, I wish you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me, Phil.